Well, good morning. Today is the uh, 28th, and we're going to cover two lessons this morning, uh, five and six. We had hoped to get to the subject matter last week, but alas, uh, I won't be optimistic again. I can assure you of that. <laughs> so uh, today we want to uh, start with the subject matter of meditation, but uh, it's always good to have a pop quiz. I'm sure everybody appreciated those in school, so let's have some today. Um, in our first four classes, the first one was a survey. So this is all rapid-fire pop quiz. Uh, don't put a lot of thought into it, ironically. Uh, so in our first class, we discussed, we had a survey of the words used to communicate the idea of meditation throughout the Old and New Testament. So what are some of those words that are in the circle of meditation, that are associated with meditation, used in the Bible. Ponder was one. Ponder was one, yep. Yeah. Shout them out. <laughs> They're getting in gear. Go for a walk. Go for a walk, yeah, that's right. Actually, prayer sometimes. Prayer is adjacent to it, sure, yeah. Ponder, prayer, go for a walk. To think. Think is one of them, sure. Yeah. Consider. Meditate. Muse. Mutter. Those are all words we did. So, uh, lesson two, describe the significance of our thoughts. So, how does the Bible describe the importance of both good and bad ways of our thoughts? We had some ways of categorizing our thoughts in lesson two. Remembers what the, how do the Gentiles think? Vain. Vain, that's one way. There was another word, too. Idle. Folly. Well, uh, folly, but that's not it. Idle, that's not quite it. Yeah, they have a lot of... Uh, well, how, which idol are you referring to? I'm Yes, that's related very closely to it, Yes. Uh, not quite the same one. Worthless. Worthless. Yeah. What was that? Was the word we used to define the word we're looking for? Uh, yeah. Evil. Well, uh, evil. Uh, evil. Yeah. Evil thoughts precede all this bad thinking. This our sinfulness is uh, manifested with evil thoughts, but that was not the category. There was a special word there. Begins with an F. Who remembers that? Futile. Futile, Futile thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> Did you get it, Ems? Yeah. Futile thoughts. Yeah, that's right. And then uh, in our third lesson, we looked at a, an, a broad array of uh, definitions on meditation, biblical forms of meditation. What were some of the characteristics? There were three of them. Three characteristics that help us understand the biblical form of meditation. What were those three? Don't have to be in order. Let's see. God, Jesus, the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> we got David and Goliath. <laughs> what, what, was the, what were the three characteristics of our working definitions of uh, meditation? 
Meditation involved three different acts. Thinking, there was, wasn't there, like... Thinking is part of it? into the, you know, part of it is, you know, discerning the meaning and, and thinking and figuring out what the practical application was. Well, not quite. That's, uh, that's part of it. That's going to be uh, part of what we're after, but uh, you guys remember the metaphor of bending... What was, what, was, what was he describing? The bending our mind toward it. That was one, but there was, we looked at a word that had half dozen different definitions about how to think about the word used that they were, odd, we were looking at the definitions of the word used in the definition. <laughs> uh, and it wasn't focus. It was a serious, a serious effort of the mind. Uh, that we were, it was, it was, a, solemn was another one, yeah. And uh, what was the second aspect of it? What, what was involved? What was the, the content? How, how was it described uh, that occupied the serious bending of the mind? Yeah, it was. Yeah, you're you're defining it negatively, and it's true. It wasn't frivolous, uh, but they had they had obscure or they had uh, I would say uh, broadly broad ranging words used in their uh, their efforts as to what should occupy this serious and solemn thinking. Just remember what uh, it's really. It, you're you're actually. Ironically, overthinking it, 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 searching out the truth, spiritual things—you know—that—that's how they categorized it. Uh, but then, what was the what was the third element of our working definition of meditation? It was it was an end that we had in mind. So we had this serious and solemn thinking, a bending of the mind about spiritual things, about truth, about scriptures. To what? What was the what was the end intended through meditation? Meditation is just the means. Meditation is not the end. And thinking is only the entry point. What's the whole point of it? No. <laughs> well, yes, but that's not how it was defined. Yeah. I wasn't here. Oh, yeah. <laughs> what did you say? I was going to say to um, to see the magnitude and what No, 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 no. It was it was to affect the heart. It was. It was to settle the heart. It was to affect the heart, to rouse the heart. That was the idea. So, and then in our last lesson, we looked at uh, many of the counterfeits to biblical meditation, and we we tried. We looked at those as non-biblical, uh, thinking that it had a slightly less negative connotation than an unbiblical form of meditation, but what were some of the non-biblical forms of meditation that we looked at? We looked at a bunch. Emptying the mind. Yeah, the practice of emptying the mind. Yep. Yep. Transcendent, 
Transcendental meditation, yeah, we spent some time looking at it. Yeah, yeah. What else? Yoga. Pardon? Yoga. Yoga. Yeah, we looked at some of the some of the aspects of yoga. That's right. Yeah. What else? What were what were some of the uh, what were some of the detrimental effects? Do you guys remember some of the wild? Inducing psychosis. Inducing psychosis. Yeah, the 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 very well known. Uh, phenomena of induced psychosis through extended meditation uh, in contemporary sense. Really frightening, yeah. We looked at uh, uh, monasteries and monks and such and their practice and why that was not something we should do. Remember the hibernation? Looked at hibernation as well. Uh, Just bizarre. And then the claims of being superhuman. You remember those guys? There were three countries that the guy mentioned these superhuman people came from. Do you guys remember where they were? India. India, yeah. Nepal? Nepal was the second. France. And some from France. <laughs> he said to think, now that's just weird. <laughs> but that's right. That's what they, that's what they discovered in this gamma way business. So, all right. So let's get started today. Today we're covering the subject matter of meditation. And in our working definitions... Many of the uh, many of the pastors who put that together, theologians said they called it a searching out the truth, an inquiry of the truth, the observation of spiritual things, the things of God in Christian instruction were all were all the uh, different ways the content of our meditation was being described, and those are interesting phrases, but they're not really precise. What exactly is meant for a search out the truth, right? Uh, what about the observation of spiritual things? What does that mean exactly? And so today, we're going to, the, in Lesson 5, you might think you're getting gypped because of how simple Lesson 5 is going to be, but there's a point as to why we're going to get through these details. Um, we're going to try to get more precise, but not that precise. We're going to get more precise then this list, and then the rest of the classes will be on increasing the precision of what we're talking about. So we're going to start up here, and we're going to get, we're going to get some help. So we need help, but help has arrived. Westminster Confession, Chapter 1, Section 1. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God is to lead men inexcusable, Yet are not they are not they they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of His will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore, it pleased the Lord to reveal Himself and to declare that His will unto His church to commit the same holy unto writing which makes the holy Scripture to be most necessary. The content of meditation starts with God's word. The content of what we're going to meditate about starts with God's word. Why? Because it's authoritative. It's written down. We can look at it. We've had it for a long time. And if you look at question number two in the shorter catechism about the rule that God's given us to, to direct us, to inform us, to guide us in how we glorify and enjoy him, it's the word of God which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. It's the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. So why is this important? Well, there are many, many topics and there are many arenas that we have available to us to meditate. But as we're contemplating something, we might not know if we've observed it correctly or not. 
There's some could be ambiguity in the content of what we're contemplating. And those ambiguities, to the extent they can be, will always be resolved by God's word. God's word is the standard. It's the only rule that directs us. So it is the beginning of what we, uh, what we appeal to. And we, we see this in the very opening of the Psalter. It's a common phrase throughout the Psalms, but in the Psalter we read in Psalm 1, verse 2, the delight of this godly man is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. It's the foundation of what we use to meditate. It is the basis, it's the starting ground, and it's the ultimate appeal for all authority. It's God-ordained revelation communicated to us in a form that is infallible and inerrant. So God's word is always our starting point. And I, I hope that's obvious, but we'll, we'll learn why that's important as we, as we move along in here. It's not the only revelation, though, God has given us. God has said many, many things, and he said them many different ways. So in Psalm 19, verses 1 through 4 and 14, I want to read this passage to us. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. And then 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Let's think about that for just a minute as we're contemplating God talking to us. Now, it, it's a foregone conclusion that the scriptures are a revelation of God talking to us. So that's not a point that's up for debate. But how valuable is creation talking to us? How much do you value thinking about what God is saying through the created world? God says a lot in the created world. So we can step back for just a minute, and, and I want to I look at how authoritatively we take this. What God says is clear, but what we hear may not be, right? What we think about what God says may not be clear, especially if he's saying it in something outside of his word. So we need his word to guide us. But think about a project, something you might have created at one time. And you had lots of things going on while you created it, right? And it, it means something to you. When you look at it, it resonates with you. It reminds you. It talks to you in a sense, right? That sounds kind of weird. Uh, but do objects ever talk to you guys? Not literally, right? They, not literally, but does that mean they're not talking to us? They're not speaking to us. So do we want to say speaking instead of talking? Maybe that takes it out of the verbal range. It could be, it's fine. But do objects speak to us? Yeah. Mm, they sure do. Do objects speak to us authoritatively? Mm, no, they don't. Not really. No, they don't. I mean, you can look at something and think this is really magnificent, and the other person next to you might not see it the same way. But that doesn't mean the object isn't speaking. But I think whatever degree of spokenness, whatever the content is contained in this object, it's speaking to us. We have a duty to hear, 
but ultimately it's subservient to the word, right? So we're not, we're not going to put, here's my impression above the word, but we, we are admitting, just as Psalm 19 says it, the heavens, they declare. Something is being said, right? The firmament shows his handiwork. Something is being spoken. But in verse 14, we see that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, from what? The things that have been spoken to him. So he has an obligation. Yes. I will show my fallenness and God's grace. So when I make something and it doesn't turn out right, I'm going to burn it. Okay. I'm going to burn it. I'm right. Going to destroy it. Right. It has caused me pain. It has caused you pain. But that is not how God treats us. No, it isn't. No, that's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, so I want to I want to look at one more passage, but I want to look at it a little differently than maybe what you historically have have seen it. So before I proceed, uh, because we're getting into mercury and mercury waters, does this make sense to you guys? Do do you believe that there is there are things being spoken to us in a nonverbal, nonwritten form, and we have an obligation to hear, learn, and understand? Okay, cool, good, we got that. Let's go to another passage. Um, I, I'm going to read it, and and I want you to uh, I want you to listen. Well, I want you to listen very carefully to what's being spoken, uh, because I want to I want to investigate it from a different perspective than maybe what you typically read this passage. This comes from Romans one, and um, it it I'm excerpting parts from verses eighteen to thirty two. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into the image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. And then down in 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. So the, the passage here, um, Paul has no problem saying God's revealed something to people. So to the point that people are without excuse for not understanding what God's saying. How much more is it incumbent on us to make sure that we're thinking about the world that God created that is communicating something to us? Uh, and there's... Um, so when we, look at, when we look at this passage and we, we see that something is being said by this inanimate object that was somehow embedded in the object, right? Because that's, creation's not auditory, right? It's, it's communicating something to us through its attributes. The, the physical world is. God put this in his, in creation, it's here. But notice what happens, that God, God's wrath is revealed, but, and men have the opportunity to understand it correctly, but they suppress that truth. So there's a communication, in a sense, back to creation, right? People are, are suppressing something that's true with their thoughts, their words, their deeds, their hearts. They're suppressing that. 
And Paul says, well, what may be known is manifest or it's clear or it's evident to them. What may be known is, is clear. It's not the communication that's faulty. That's the point he's making. And why? Well, because God is the one that showed him. Now, you, you may walk out of this class confused about something I've said, and that is fair, but it's not fair to say what God is saying is unclear, unknowable, or something we could be willfully ignorant about. And, and then Paul has this sort of play on words that his attributes, his invisible attributes, are clearly seen. Right? I, I like that phrase. And what's the result of, of this communication interchange between the created world that God has set in motion and the people who inhabit that world, the thinking people who inhabit that world? Well, they become futile in their thinking. It becomes pointless. They become vain in their thoughts. Whatever it is that they're thinking, and I'm not here referring to their activities that are condemned, we're talking about how the mind is being affected. They become futile, and that, that idea of the futility of thinking is exactly what Paul's communicating later on when he refers to them as the Gentiles who walk in the futility. The whole point of their mental existence is in vain. And I've given you a lot to think about. Look what you've done with it. You've become vain in your thinking. And then it says they did not retain God. So they're, now they're actively putting out knowledge that they could have. They're actively saying, I don't want this knowledge. I want to suppress it. And whatever they do downstream from that, whatever activities flow out of their lives, in a sense, are a derivative. It's a consequence of what's going on over here with the message. So God says, you've got knowledge. I've given it to you. And you wanted to suppress that knowledge. And what's the end result? You have a debased mind. Now, a debased mind is going to produce a lot of debased activity. And if you, if you think about the activity, and that's where your focus are, you sort of miss the point. You're seeing the outworking of the debased mind. What's most important is so, not stopping the activity, but stopping the debased thinking, right? Which comes from the suppression of the truth and not thinking about creation the right way. So God has given us something to think about in the created world, and he wants us to think a lot about creation. But he wants us to think about it the right way. And if you don't, you get put into this category that says you're futile. And what's going to happen at the end of your futility? You're going to have a debased mind, which is exactly not what God wants when he created us in his image. Does that make sense? And so creation as, an, as a content of our meditation is vitally important to the extent that lots of people are having their hearts aroused in a different direction because of the wrong way they're meditating on what God is saying. So they're meditating, right? They're just not meditating in a way that's fruitful. They're harboring and nurturing thoughts. So the choice is, are you going to look at creation and think about it the right way, or are you going to look at creation and think about it the wrong way? One way leads to a debased mind, futile thinking, judgment. The other way looks at the invisible attributes and glorifying God. It's, it's remarkable how important the mind is in Romans 1 as we think about this. All right, so does it, let's stop there, offer an opportunity for... Any comments? Sometimes it's helpful to have very highly distilled examples of this. We probably can all think of 
many of them, earth worship, or many, many that I just really struck by looking at God's creation with a debased mind, specifically human creation. We both look at this, we see the created life in the womb, and we devise ways to kill it. No, absolutely. Thinking about all that would go into saying, understand, like, the science is settled, I understand this wonder that's made here, and I devise ways to destroy it. Right. And to, and all the things that go with that, and to really in a debased way uh, magnify the goodness of so doing. This is a good thing. We must do this. This is great. Just an example of something that's so defiled, so um, depraved, and yet so prevalent. You just kind of like see this in. It's visceral. It's, it's right visceral. there before it's you. Like, it's, it's just that, I mean. It's been an, a point of contention in our country for 50 years, you know, and, and lots of people acting in lots of different ways. And it's a, it's a failure. And what's, what struck me as, I, as I've been thinking about meditation is going back to lesson two, the significance of our thoughts. Nobody gets a free ride from not being responsible for their thoughts. And, and God's given you a mind to cultivate it for greatness. Not, not that the people of the world are going to, uh, you, you're, going, you're going to be somebody in the eyes of the world, but you're going to possess thoughts about the great God. He's come down and said, I've given you the ability to understand me. So you can rouse your hearts. Yeah. That's, but, that's the whole point. Yeah, and that same example, then you might look at what's there in this example of the abortion and, and glorify God for the wonder of what he's made here and all the ways that you might go toward kind of like a sanctified point of view. And just the polar opposite way to it, that it tends to go. You you have the opportunity to glorify the one who's created this being, to cherish it, and so on. That's not where it goes. Reminds me of the uh, the definition. I think it was Watson in his definition that grace breeds delight. The object of what we think about is, is there are lots of people who dedicate their lives to trying not unravel the mysteries of the created world and all the wisdom that God has embedded and I'm thankful for all those things my mind doesn't go there I don't understand it I don't understand what a light year is I don't understand the stars I don't understand any of those things but I do understand the stars have names and I'm really curious about that that seems kind of fascinating that's something I can wrap my mind around thinking God named all these things he named them in clusters God refer- do you know that God is aware of the constellation Orion it says so in the book of Job and Pleiades, he says that. God doesn't have any problem looking at clusters of stars and saying, you're doing exactly what I want you to do. That I find interesting. I don't have any idea how far light year is, so don't ask those types of questions. I don't have any idea. But God has made us to delight in the marvel of his wisdom and everything about the world he created. So creation has a special place of revelation for his people to be thinking about as content for their meditation to fulfill their God-given role to glorify and enjoy him forever. It, it could be. It sounds like something he would say and it's, it's so true. Yeah, creation shouts. There's lots of stuff being said. Imagine if you were, as a parent, or you're in the workforce, it doesn't matter if you've got people you're supposed to talk to and they're actively not listening to you while you're talking. That's really frustrating. When you see it on a personal level, like that's no way to run things, right? That's, that's wrong. 
God is always talking to us night and day, and he expects us to be listening and thinking about it. So, cool. All right, well, let's, let's go to the uh, third major section of content, scriptures, creation, and providence. Providence is the third area. Let's look at... Uh, Let's look at Psalm 77, 11, and 12. And before I read that, remind you that God's providential care is distinct from his creation, has a voice. God's providential care of the world has a voice. And the, Bi- the Bible um, often describes this voice in two different ways. One is his care for everything, but then in particular, his care for his people. So there are Two different, if you will, groups underneath the umbrella of providential care. There's probably more, but if you think about them in this light and how the scriptures describe those things, we should be listening for both. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate on all your work and talk of your deeds. What God has done fills his language. It fills his mind with things he should be thinking about. In Deuteronomy 5, remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out there by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. What's interesting here is this idea of the Sabbath day being a day given to rest, certainly, but also to reflect. It's a a day given of mental work. The rest of the week might be spent in other areas of mental work, but the Sabbath day was designed to be a day to reflect mentally on what God has done, which is what he did on the first Sabbath day. He looked and saw that all that he did was good. God meditates on his own wonder, right? And that's what he's doing. But what's interesting here is in both of these passages, as we think about them in terms of meditation, in terms of our thought life, Meditating on God's providence has the additional duty of remembering attached to it. It's not just enough to observe in real time. God also wants us to remember the works of old. He wants us to remember that we were once slaves in Egypt. Isn't it interesting that he does things? He, so he creates the world, and there's an ongoing care for it, and he wants us to marvel about it. But he particularly wants us to think about the things he's done for his people in redemption. So well, not only do we think about creation, but we have to think about the ongoing historical redemptive work that he's done on behalf of his people. You may not forget. You must remember. That's a big and tall requirement that not only do we have his word, but we have history, we have order, we have all these things that God wants us to fill our minds with. He doesn't want us forgetting these things. It won't do us any good. It'll glorify him if we remember. So providence, that's all I'm going to say on, on this third section. So we've got the word, we've got creation, we've got providence. are all explicitly mentioned throughout the scriptures as areas that we use for meditation. Now, you might be thinking that this list, in a sense, is kind of dumb because it's patently obvious, right? It's, it's not innovative, but it is obvious. But I don't think it's, it lacks actionability. 
the last lessons that we have are going to look at each of these sections with some detail to describe how we concretely go about securing a time and effort and what that practice looks like as we think about the word creation and providence. So this has been our scaffolding to look at the practical effects of meditation. So, does that make sense? All right. Well, let's, uh, let's go straight on to uh, how to meditate, lesson six.